Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Dr. Renee Liang. Renee is a second-generation Cantonese New Zealander who blends her vocations of medicine and the arts. On the medicine side, she's a paediatrician and medical researcher with a special interest in community and youth health. She's also Asian theme lead on landmark longitudinal research study growing up in New Zealand. Renee is also a playwright, a poet and a writer, with much of her work exploring the migrant experience. Now her work is diverse, too much to share here as part of the intro, but I know we'll hear more about it as part of our conversation. But her work is also very much widely read, followed, watched and has received much critical acclaim. In 2018, she won the next Woman of the Year for Arts and Culture and was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2018 for services to the arts. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about her career journey today. Kia ora, Renee, and thank you very much for joining me. Sure. I'd love to start a little way back. And if you think back to yourself as a child or even perhaps into your teenage years, what careers were you thinking about or maybe dreaming about or even aspiring to? Oh, well... Well, I'm sorry to say that I always wanted to be a paediatrician. So it helped that my dad was a paediatrician, so I saw early on what that was like. And I guess to a child's eye, when you see your parent coming home and he's full of excitement and curiosity and also has chocolates with him for a patient, that you as a child think, yeah, no, that feels like a pretty good option. I want to do that. And... I guess even though he worked really long hours and we used to have our evening meals at home at sort of 10 o'clock at night so that we could eat together as a family. And I did see him sometimes really tired and stressed out as well. I think overall I, I really just still wanted to be a pediatrician. And when I went to high school and I fell in love with books and decided that I also wanted to write, I thought, well, you know, I can actually do this as well. So I still just wanted to be a paediatrician. And then tell me about the first few years then of your career. What did you learn from uh, from that period of time? Well, it was interesting because, of course, it was really hard work and the first part of it wasn't paediatrics. So when you qualify for med school, you do your first year out um, with something we call internship. It's your first year learning on the job, I suppose. And I chose to do mine first year at Rotorua Hospital. And in those days, overnight, there was only one doctor covering the whole hospital. If there was anything happening, you were the first doctor that dealt with it. You could potentially call them others, but you needed to have a pretty high bar to call them in. So it was really hard. There were lots of times when I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know. But then what really helped was that everybody was doing it. So, you know, we all took turns to do the shifts. And also, importantly, with the other people, not the non-doctors, so the nurses, the orderlies, 
they were all there and they, they had all seen this many times before, you know, like a young doctor that was just so unsure and so scared and they kind of knew how to hold the young doctors. So, you know, despite what you see and all the dramas on TV and all that kind of thing, it actually was different from real life for me at least. I remember one moment a person came in who wasn't breathing, so we started CPR and I remember just sort of you know, trying to stand in the footstool because I'm quite short, so I needed it. Somebody brought me a footstool and I stood on and I started to do the chest compressions. And I just heard this gentle, excuse me, and I looked over and there was this huge man who was a hospital orderly. He, was, he had come to take the chest compression job over so that I could then move on to the other bits that I needed to do. And I remember just thinking, yeah, this is, this is teamwork, it was trust. It was just learning to communicate and also that sort of a really early, for me, early lesson on equity, the fact that, you know, I might be the doctor, but I'm not, like, top of the heap when it comes to doing stuff. It's all about us doing, you know, the jobs that we need to do. I guess at a certain point in time, you got to actually really move into your specialty around being a paediatrician. You know, what were the highlights and challenges then of that phase of your career? Um, it was a pretty long journey. So my journey was I trained in New Zealand uh, initially just for the first six months in paediatrics. So I did, uh, got a six-month job at Starship knowing that halfway through I would be heading off in my OE. So I went to... Uh, I did the classically, which was possible in those days. I went to the UK, did a bit of travelling around, and then I kind of tried to settle down into a job in London for a year. I went and did locating around the UK, and during that time I also took plenty of time off and did a lot of travelling. And then I came back via Australia, and the initial thought is I'll just stop off and see what Australia's bit like, uh, went to Sydney, got a job, and ended up staying there for four and a half years and doing most of my training there and then came home to New Zealand. By that time, I was a little bit older. I'd been through quite a lot of other stuff in terms of life stuff. And I was definitely a lot more cynical about the medical system, but also still had a lot of hope. And unfortunately, that was somewhat crushed when I came home to New Zealand. Place that was supposed to be home and sustain me because that's where I had up against some pretty bad workplace bullying. Yeah, had my spirit crushed a little bit. I think is probably a good way to say. Um, and decided to leave medicine uh, was the end point of that. And uh, I didn't go back to the arts because I guess I'd already, I'd always sort of thought that I was part of it. But I started training in the arts. I got that's when I went back to uni and uh, did. My master of creative writing initially, tried to write a novel. As I was writing my novel, I, I got a little bit distracted, as people often do, and started making theatre. And then I discovered that actually there was a, an audience for the stories I was telling because at that time, about 15 years ago, there were a lot of like Māori and Pacific storytelling was really coming into its own. There were, lot, there were more people standing up to tell their stories and demand that their stories be heard. And so I guess the venues and the producers and the publishers were looking around saying, okay, well, we also have Asian New Zealanders and who's telling their story. You know, completely innocently I walked into this 
and said, oh, I have a story. It was just good timing on my part. Wonderful. And often careers are a combination of some hard work and a little bit of luck as well along the way. But it feels like absolutely there was some good timing there. It's quite a significant career shift, though, then for you to be thinking, okay, I'm going to give up medicine, something I'd studied for, worked hard for for a number of years to do something quite different. You know, I know you said that it had always been part of you. And I know actually in the end, of course, you haven't given up medicine, that you're still, you're managing to combine both. But when we work with people in coaching, a lot of them are thinking about, you know, should I make that shift? Should I make that leap into something quite different, quite new? I wonder if you can share a little bit about how how you made that decision about, you know, I'm going to try something totally different. So what's interesting, I think, is that it's not, it wasn't a, a decision. I just got to the stage where I, I guess I realised that medicine was not everything I dreamed it would be, at least not at that stage. So, you know, I started off giving that rosy eyed view at the beginning, but a few years on, and you start to see the interpersonal conflicts and the politics and the fact that not everyone plays fair. And that's something that's been very well documented in medicine, that it's to do with hierarchy and the structure. So it's to do with the fact that the, you know, the people further up are the people that sort of basically make the decisions on where the people are starting out, whether they advance or not, and get selected for training programs or get given jobs. So it's not actually a level playing field. There's still a lot of bias, racism, sexism. I mean, none of this is something that I'm throwing out as my own personal experience. It's actually well documented in multiple studies done by professional organisations on bullying and burnout in the medical profession. So my decision was more that, you know what, I'm stupid if I keep on knocking my head against a brick wall in a system that clearly doesn't want me. I think I need to listen to myself and look after myself. And it actually was getting to the stage where I, the point of decision-making was more that if I don't give myself permission to do something different and to nurture this writer inside of me, I'm going to hate medicine so much I'll never go back to it. So for me, I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself a year out initially. I did That was my MCW, which I did at a university, and I was hoping to find a community of people around me that would virtually on my writing journey and I guess the rest of that you know from one community you find other communities I'd already been really active in the spoken word community at that stage for about four or five years and had really felt welcomed by them that there were people there that I really related to and then I also found the theatre community and I found the literature community and so all these communities in the arts felt very very different to what I was enduring in medicine and I just decided I'm a lot happier where I am and I'm going to explore. I always thought that I would not leave medicine completely. I didn't sort of go oh, I'm done and by forever. I just thought no I need a break. I took that break. It is um, a, a really beautiful community uh, because as you can imagine especially in, say, the genres of poetry and theatre, there's actually not a lot of money. (laughs) So you can guarantee that people are doing what they do because they really want to or need to either and that they have something they really just want to say 
And I guess for me as well, I found a lot that I want to say. So that stuff that I mentioned about what's happening in the world of medicine, um, I guess that's part of my wider belief system that there's a lot of inequity in the world and a lot of voices that maybe aren't getting heard that need to be heard. And I myself am very privileged. English is a language that I'm fluent in and I am able to use language and storytelling. I have those skill sets that I've had a lot of mentorship and teaching in and I am also from a relatively privileged part of society. You know, middle class, I can earn a good salary and so on. And so maybe if I have these skills, maybe it's time for me to step up and not only tell my own story, but that I can help other people tell the stories. How do you now find working that combination of medicine and the arts? So I see what I do as actually all being part of one thing, which is storytelling. So as a doctor, I welcome someone into my space and then I ask them to tell me their story. I say something like, oh, you know, what would you like to ask about today? What are you worried about today? Those are the very typical questions that we would ask somebody for the first time. And in my case, I'm actually dealing with several people's stories in my room because we always consider the child in context with their whole family and also their community. So whoever's in my room, I'm interested in all of them, not just the child, because they are part of the child. And then once I've heard their story, I I guess what I do is I try and sort out their story in my head a little bit, all the different layers, all the things they're not actually telling me in words, but which they are actually telling me. And then I sort of tend to check back with them if I've got the story right. And then the last part is working with them to maybe change aspects of their story they're not happy with, and it's a partnership. And I guess the writer or you know, whatever genre you're talking about, because yes, all those things you mentioned about things I've done, all of them are aspects of, of that storytelling as well. So obviously it's not a real person sometimes, that whose story you're telling, but it is a real person because those characters are all based on somebody that you've met or that you've seen or that you've thought about, you know, that act of creating a character. If you don't base it on something real life or a number of real life things, then the audience will always be able to tell that it's made up. So you always base it on truth. And then that character becomes, I guess, real for the writer. And it's the same process of asking, well, what's your story? What part of your story do you want to tell? What part of your story do you want to change? I mean, it's a slightly different output. It's a slightly different process or way of thinking about it. But... In actual fact, all of it is stories. Mm, and that storytelling goes across all your work. It's the thread that holds it together. Yeah, really nice. Renee, you know, no career is kind of easy and you talked about some of the tough times when you were perhaps feeling burnt out or you got frustrated by the inequities or, or felt or were being bullied at work. Um, you know, as you look back at across your career or life, depending on how you want to look at it. But as you look back, you know, what would you say have been some of the toughest challenges or, or moments that you've faced? I guess the biggest moment was actually realising that I was a victim of workplace bullying. I because I felt stupid, I actually only realised this well after I've actually walked out of my job in medicine. 
And, you know, I was, I remember, I think I came across it on the internet, somebody else posted it up. I said, I looked through all the criteria and I met each and single, every one of them. But I hadn't realized that I was actually being bullied at that stage. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, how could I not realize this, especially considering what I do? And also that whole thing of realizing that somebody who is your hero, who is your mentor, is not actually your hero and doesn't have your best interest at heart. It takes a lot to get through that because initially the first, I think the first response is, you know, no, it's me. It's my, my fault, my problem. And then the second thought is, how can I be so stupid and not see this? And then I think the third thought is, how come no one told me? How come no one tried to help me? And then you feel, you know, so you're feeling betrayed, stupid, you know, all of those things. And again, I know this is quite a common feeling because I've since talked to a lot of people who have been in similar situations and we've all gone through that stage. I mean, I guess, how did you, because that is a, a range of, emotions, feelings, thoughts that are might be tricky to work with uh, through in terms of feeling, as you said, betrayed, stupid. How did you work through that for yourself? Oh, it's still a journey. I mean, I've actually never called my bully to account. There are processes in place to do that, but, you know, I think the general feeling is that they're not safe enough yet to engage in for most people. Again, not just me. <laughs> Lots of people I've talked to about this. I have, you know, in terms of the workplace bullying and burnout and medicine, I, I have actually um, started a project to deal with it through the medium theatre and performance. So I have got a, a play that I've written the first draft of and it has had a public reading called The Doctor Monologues, which is meant to be an inward-facing doctors-to-doctors, um, I guess, let's, let's open this topic up. Let's explore a really safe space, which is a space of theatre. And let's talk about what we've all experienced and how we can listen to each other and support each other because that's kind of how it starts. But even the, you know, like I have to say that, that we're not even getting the basics right at this stage. There's been so many people that have you know, tried really hard to help and lots of people stating good intentions and organisations stating good intentions. But to be honest, there's... It's still happening all the time in hospitals. So I don't think that we're almost any way to solve that issue. And the problem is that it's structural, so actually to do with hierarchy of medicine, which goes all the way back. So the sexism starts with the idea that, you know, initially this doctors were almost all men, or they were all men. So this even the separation, you know, you see it all the time. And doctors are paid more for a start because they used to be all men, that all middle class Asian men. <laughs> and um, so they're paid more because they, they have more power. Women who work in health, who are, for example, nurses or allied health practitioners, they generally get paid less. And that's because they're women. So, you know, this, this goes back absolute centuries. All of us is the hierarchy of medicine and many other fields. I think there are many other professions which suffer from the same issues. And so you're sort of left with that idea of, well, do you tear down the house and build it up again or do you try and make renovations where you can? 
Mm. And I think you're spot on in terms of saying that those similar system structures exist within so many parts of society and organisations and all functions and that it goes beyond, say, an issue like bullying to issues around pay equity or issues around bias and stereotypes and favouritism that then flow through and absolutely you know how that actually do you need to tear it down or is it doesn't need to be a renovation but equally I think you know you talking about that that the first reaction for yourself into that scenario was it's you know it's it's my fault or whereas actually it feels like over time you've been able to take a step back and go it's the system that's that needs to shift um, rather than necessarily me well I'm part of that system now I'm actually I am part of the issue which is I guess why I'm really happy to talk about like this because I think maybe if somebody you know sees somebody like me who's senior say these things maybe they'll feel a little bit safer to think about these things themselves Mm, and just as you said you know you're using your voice in that way you're also using your voice you said within your writing work as well to tell people's stories and using perhaps as you said maybe the privilege or position that you have to be able to share that on a wider stage yeah Renee, switch tack a little bit. You know, I'm conscious you have a very busy life now in terms of all the different pieces of work that fit within your life. How do you find some kind of balance between all those parts of your life? So it turns out that among the many things I learned when I was a junior doctor, I learned to shift quickly from job to job because you, know, you literally have three pages of the hip and also all these people coming up to you while you're trying to do one job saying, could you please do this one tiny little job for me? So you're always trying to switch your brain between all these different little stories all the time, all these little roles. So this is what I'm doing as well. I try and say, today I'm doing this. Or this actually is not today. It's this hour I'm trying to do this thing. And when I finish this thing, I'll do this other thing. And I try, not very successfully sometimes, to, to make sure that I have separate work streams for the different things. Um, I set a lot of do- deadlines for myself. Then I tell other people. <laughs> what the deadlines are so, so that I can feel suitably embarrassed when I don't meet them. I am getting better at letting other people do the jobs that I think I should do, but which I don't have capacity to do, and that includes parenting. So I have a, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. I have a really amazing, enviable partnership where my husband is a stay-at-home parent but also we both have extended families who are very um, culturally very keen to also take their part of parenting mode and part of that is me learning how to say yes to that and not to get too caught up in small details of how they parent my child. More about just being grateful that they're there for my child. Yeah, and finally I'm, I'm slightly getting better at saying, oh, I'm really, really bad at it to be played. Because actually saying yes has been really integral to my success over the years, saying yes to stuff. But I'm learning to say no sometimes. And as you said, there isn't some sort of magic formula or secret recipe somehow to balance. Well, actually, just interrogating that word balance, you know, I think that's that's an interesting word, you know, like we feel it's a good thing to have balance. But it's also a good thing to be passionate about lots of things and to have pure energy from lots of things. So... You know, so long as it, so long as it, it makes you burn with something to do it, 
I don't know that balance is the main thing. It's just about recognising when you have a passion for something and hoping, you know, you might need to move some things around on the desk to fit that on the desk at that time and you might need to move something else off your desk. You know, that's also important. And, you know, similarly, if you find that something that you used to be passionate about no longer makes you burn, then maybe you should think about putting that aside until it starts to heat up again. Yeah, interesting, different take on it. I think there were still some great, you know, you know, some good personal ways that you manage your life that can be helpful to others in terms of deadlines and sharing the accountability somehow with others to help make it happen. I'd love to hear, you know, I'm sure there are many things that might make you proud as you look back. What are some of those when you look back at your career and your life to date? What are some of your proudest moments? Ah. Gosh, everything. Um, it's it's really funny because every time I put something out on the stage, it's this combination of absolute terror and embarrassment that somebody's seeing the inside of my brain, but also this pride because it is like putting a new baby out into the world and seeing how people react to it. The work that I'm that I think when I eventually look back on my career. Um, that has consumed a lot of my hours is the story of the SS Bentmore, a shipwreck in the Hokianga, which was actually a coffin ship. So it was at the turn of the last century, so there was an English steamer that was chartered by the Chinese communities living in the time, and it had a very unusual cargo, which was 499 coffins, which contained the very carefully retrieved bones of people who had died in New Zealand before being able to return to their home villages. And in that time, very similar to Māori Pacific beliefs, believe that if you didn't return to your home ground, that you wouldn't be there for your descendants and that your descendants wouldn't be able to look after you as well. And so it's really crucially important that you return home, as it were. And this particular ship, you know, had a rock on its way up the coast and then sank just outside of the Hokkien Harbour. It was actually trying to get into Safe Harbour at the time, so it wasn't a victim to the sandbar of Hokkien, which has plagued a lot of other ships. And it sank in deep water and it wasn't able to be retrieved. But then over time, the shipwreck broke up on the seafloor and the coffin started floating to into the beaches where they were found by local iwi who immediately recognised them as somebody else's family and also recognised that they were the people that needed to look after them until their real families came from them. So these Chinese ancestors became adopted by Hokianga Iwi. I wrote a play and then I wrote two more plays and then I got invited to write the Threshold of Opera by the Open Arts Festival and Gareth Farr, who's this amazing musical composer, came with me to China to, you know, understand. We visited the original villages and the original graves and we went to the archives and then we came home and we wrote an together and presented it in 2017. And then since then, I've actually also been involved in, I guess, those, the real life. So, you know, my original story was about a young man who goes up north to find his ancestors and I was able to witness that happen life young people who are now five or six generations of New Zealanders going up north to find the stories of their ancestors from the people who found their ancestors 
Oh, fascinating. And what a wonderful thing to be proud of that you've brought this to life a little bit more for people. Nice. And Renee, where do you see your career heading in the future? (laughs) I always laugh at this question because I actually have no idea. Which is great. I love it when people say that. It's like, and that's okay. I think there was some advice in my 20s to, you know, do this, what, five-year plan, 10-year plan. No, I don't even have a one-year plan. I have no idea. I mean, it turns out I'm right because, you know, it's COVID time. So nobody, it's, it's quite good to not have a plan because then you don't have anything to kind of let go of. But I've got some general directions that I'm very excited by that have kind of started occurring. So one of them is a journey into governance. We can only do so much jumping up and down the sidelines and, and telling people they should do things. Some stage you've got to roll up your sleeves and be one of people actually doing the thing. And that requires a seat at the table. So I've started, you know, over the last five or six years, I've started saying yes to stuff that involves having a seat at the table. And I intend to continue that. And I guess the other thing is that I'm now involved quite heavily in research. So you mentioned growing up in New Zealand, which I'm now about 13 or 14 years into being my particular role as the Asian theme leaders, I guess, trying to represent the interests and views of the Asian community, which is a pretty massive ask. I mean, no one person can do that because the Asian community is so huge, so diverse, and so on. So, again, that's about me understanding that I need to help for that. I need to ask people, lots of people, what they as well as bring that back to the table. And one last question, Renee, if I may. I'd love to hear um, what advice, or particularly what career advice, would you have for other women? I guess it's has to do with the burn you know it's possible now that I'm a little way in I guess that I can look back and go oh that's weird I managed to do these things and now I can see how one thing led to another you can't really at the time you sort of just say oh that seems like too good an opportunity to turn down why don't I do that and now when I think back it's actually because I followed my heart and I followed the passion and I thought is this going to light my way is this going to be something burns for a long time and if it is then maybe I'll say yes even if I'm not don't think I yet have those skills so that's the other thing I think there's also a fair amount of trust that the person asking you to like might know a little bit more than you know about your abilities at that stage but I've always felt that that also comes with the caveat that you have to ask for help so at the, at the same stage that, you know, for example, someone saying, you know, I want you to write an opera, I, I think what I said was, I don't know how to write an opera. Can you tell me how you're going to support me in that? And, it, you know, it turns out that the person that was asking me did have lots of ideas on how to support me as it is. And so I think also being able to acknowledge that even if you say yes, you still need help, and asking for that help is good. Yeah, great. I think it's wonderful piece there, aren't you? Finding your burn and your passion. And it was a really neat point that you made in there is actually, even if you're not quite ready to say yes, and that trust that maybe the other person knows a little bit more about you than you know about yourself. I think it's a great point and one that a lot of us um, could, could take on board, but still being okay to ask for help when that thing is quite a stretch for you. Lovely. Renee, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today to hear about your kind of wide-ranging career journey, some of those points at which you've made those shifts and how you've gone about obviously finding 
and keeping your passion, your burn, continuing to seek that out. And also, of course, as you said, continuing that wonderful thread around storytelling as well that came through. So thank you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.